Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this episode we're talking with a neurosurgery about his specialty and in particular about minimally invasive approaches to spinal neurosurgery. Well, neurosurgery is that surgical specialty managing structural diseases of the nervous system, including the brain, spinal cord, and peripheral nervous system. In death, the ancient Egyptians knew their way into the central nervous system with a process of exerebration. This was used in mummification, which allowed the removal of the brain from corpses prior to actual embalming. Greek writer Herodotus, who was a frequent visitor to Egypt, wrote in the 5th century BC about the process. Having agreed on a price, the bearers go away and the workmen, left alone in their place, embalm the body. If they do this in a perfect way, they first draw out part of the brain through the nostrils of the nine hook and inject certain drugs into the rest. Charming. During the Roman Empire, doctors and surgeons performed neurosurgery on depressed skull fractures, and in the Middle Ages, surgical treatments were undertaken for management of head injuries, skull fractures, spinal injuries, hydrocephalus, subdural effusions and headache, although we can only guess on how successful these may have been. The Incas practiced a neurosurgical procedure known as trepanation, which involved drilling a hole into the skull, and this was well before European colonization. However, now in the modern age, specialized branches of neurosurgery have developed to cater for an array of challenging conditions, including vascular neurosurgery, which includes clipping of aneurysms and performing carotid endarterectomy, stereotactic neurosurgery and functional neurosurgery, including deep brain stimulation and epilepsy surgery, oncological neurosurgery for the treatment of benign and malignant central and peripheral nervous system cancers, such as glioblastoma multiforme and other gliomas, brainstem cancer, astrocytoma, pontine glioma, medulloblastoma, spinal cancer, tumours of the meninges and intracranial spaces, and secondary metastases to the brain, spine and nerves, as well as peripheral nervous system tumours. There's a branch that deals more with skull brain-based surgery, spinal surgery, which will be the focus of our conversation today, peripheral nerve surgery, and paediatric neurosurgery. A quote I found from neurosurgeon reads, Neurosurgery seemed to present the most challenging and direct confrontation with meaning, identity, and death. Only the neurosurgeon dares to improve upon five billion years of evolution in a few hours, the human brain. Well, with that said, please welcome neurosurgeon David Omi to the conversation to introduce us to his special interests in neurosurgery, including the management of complex spine conditions with minimally invasive and keyhole techniques, as well as the treatment of brain tumours and cranial neurosurgery. We really do look forward to David guiding us through this fascinating specialty. David Omi, welcome to Everyday Medicine. Thank you very much for being available uh, tonight um, to have me make this recording with you about all things neurosurgical, David. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, your reputation procedure in southeast Melbourne. Uh, we are very much uh, liked and you're the go-to guy uh, really for all our sort of general uh, neurosurgical referrals. So it's going to be really interesting for me to chat with you about what you do. Um, I did hear a quote, David, and I want to ask you about your, uh, you know, if your career and your journey. But I did hear a quote which went like this: "I'm a neurosurgeon. To save time, let's just assume that I'm never wrong." <laughs> I don't know whether neurosurgeons have to have this degree of confidence. My son's actually doing a neurosurgical term at the moment at Monash, 
and he starts at 6.30 in the morning, which is uh, makes me feel particularly lazy in gastroenterology. I don't start at that time. But uh, um, he said, you, you all work extremely hard and it's, it's a very unforgiving kind of uh, you know, specialty and there's a lot of stress and pressure on you and often uh, from brain tumours to uh, quadriquinal lesions or clipping aneurysms and what, what, all the things you do, there's, there's a lot of pressure on you to be very precise. So um, tell me, what, why did you go into, into neurosurgery, David? What, what was it that led you into that field? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for that kind introduction. Um, I'll address the liar, lying neurosurgeon later. But, uh, my, my journey into neurosurgery depends who you are. If you ask me, I tell a different story to some of my friends. One of my good friends from school, uh, I moved school halfway through high school and I'm studying and said, well, what are you studying for? And I told him as a, as a joke, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. And it's probably the worst comment I've ever made. I've never lived it down. And I, I wasn't actually that serious at that stage. But, um, so that's what some of my friends will say. It was, it was a long time ago. But uh, for me personally, um, I did the old six-year medical course where um, the first three years were, were very basic science and, and a heavy anatomy. And, and I kind of really gravitated towards head and neck anatomy and brain anatomy and there was a, a well, very well-regarded neurosurgeon in, in Professor Southview who uh, was also a brilliant anatomist and teacher, and he was teaching in that kind of a brain, a sagittal section, and there was a big pituitary tumour. I kind of looked at it, and he didn't really need any medical training to realise what the problem was, and I looked at it, and he said, well, that, that's what it all looked like, a growth on description, and, and I said to him, well, how would you take that out? Sitting in the middle of the brain, and, and he said, oh, that would be very easy to take out through the nose. And I was kind of mystified at how you could remove a camera in the brain through the nose. And, and that was probably the first time it really perked my interest. Um, and then um, I did my elective in neurosurgery in final year um, at the Alfred Hospital. And then again, sort of thought it was pretty cool. Um, there are a few neurosurgeons when now my colleague, I might name him at that time, and I thought it was pretty cool and thought I wouldn't mind doing what they're doing. And then I started working in neurosurgery as a resident, and I kind of very quickly drifted down the path. And I knew I wanted to do surgery sort of out of a process of elimination. Neurosurgery, plastic surgery, cardiac surgery. Funnily enough, renal condition, the water outlier. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. But um, anyway. saw the light. <laughs> and I did... I, I very quickly gravitated towards uh, neurosurgery. And so in third year, I was doing sort of half a year. And then um, then I went into, and I created a registrar trading and then basic surgical trading. And, and um, I think neurosurgery is a bit, once you sort of start, it's very hard to get out of it. It sort of sucks you in. And it's probably only been the last couple of years where I'm, really assess what happened over the last 20, 15 to 20 years. Kind of chewed me up and sat me out the other side. And now I've been a consultant for the last six or seven years. And suddenly now I'm starting to look back on it. Once you're on the training program, you're kind of just working so hard um, and then starting practice. And so that's how I got into it. Um, fortunately, I like, I suppose I like it. I mean, can be very brutal. And so certainly the training in retrospect was was quite quite brutal um my, my life was certainly a lot more manageable now 
I kind of my my quote with Eurostern is that it kind of made my made and ruined my life by time. <laughs> I think that's most medical and surgical specialties. They are brutal, aren't they? They require a lot of attention. It's it's a vocation, really. You've got to throw your life in, and you do have to make lots of sacrifices. And I would think in neurosurgery, it's reasonably unforgiving. You've got to be there. There are emergencies. There aren't things you can put off. You've also got some very difficult conversations with patients, um, at which I, you know, that that's the skill I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. It must be very hard. I think, am I right in saying that the mummies, uh, the Egyptian mummies, had their brains removed through their nose? David, is that? You've been to Egypt, but I remember reading it somewhere. Is that correct? Is it an Egyptian technique getting the pituitary tumour out? Thousands of years old. Funnily enough, I don't do pituitary surgery now, and the concept of going through the nose kind of, I won't say disgust me, but it's. um, it's not, I'm not as impressed by it now as what I was, but I, so I leave the pituitary to the pituitary guys. But um, yeah, I'm sure, funny, you can do a lot of it's amazing how much stuff you can actually move through to know what the both. Yeah. I think, Dave, you're, you've sort of more specialised in the management of, of back uh, neurosurgery of the spine and so forth. And, and this is, this, it seems to me, this is where neurosurgery. You know, everyone sort of, I think now it's it's the go-to neurosurgeon is the person that seems to be operating predominantly on you know, difficult spines and making you know carefully considered decisions about who should or shouldn't have uh, an operation. Can you work with, like, just talk me through that. Someone comes in with back pain and they've operated with one of my uh, sort of friends and, and secretaries just recently is very happy with the outcome. But, you know, how, how do you approach this problem? Someone comes in with back pain, how are you making that decision? Yes, yeah, so I think. Being a spine surgeon, yeah. although we, when you're dealing with spinal, a lot of the yeah. it's very it's very different to dealing with other pathologies, um, such as tumours, where you know, it's a lot more binary, I suppose, and more yeah, uh, yeah. dealing with some of the And so, it, a lot of the patients I'm seeing are it's either neck or back pain, or, or or more importantly, from a from a surgeon perspective, that they have some type of neurological pain disorder so due to pressure on a nerve they'll either have sciatic or elite pain or other neurological deficit or they'll have now upper limb pain um finally enough because now my practice has sort of drifted down to like 100 percent spine but it's now 90 in a, a complex spinal practice pediatric or adolescent scoliosis I, I do pretty much all conditions um, but funnily enough, I spend the majority of my days telling patients why they don't want surgery rather than that actually do, because by far the majority of conditions of spinal patients that I see don't, don't need surgery. And it's very common to, you know, the probably one in eight to one in ten patients that I see actually need surgery and then they may not need surgery straight away either. And it's a different process that you work down. So the majority of the time I'm telling patients why they don't need surgery and that in itself can be ruling, but um, it, it's the reality of being a spine surgeon. You know, the expectations of patients are very different with it. I mean, unfortunately, particularly when it comes to nerve pain, I can be very, very confident that if the distribution of the, the nerve compression that I'm seeing on a scan, I can be very, very confident that if I take the pressure off the nerve, but then, then, then the limb pain is going to improve. Okay, now... Um, yeah, occasionally you might get it wrong and that the, the, the compressive nerve may not be causing it or 
there may be some reason why the patient has pain, but it, you know, generally it's pretty reliable that the pain will improve. When it comes to axial back or neck pain, it's a very different um, different beast, I suppose. And, it, and it's not to say there are patients that don't benefit from surgery to treat back or neck pain, but they're, they're much lower. And the, the where we need to be very careful as surgeons is how we do manage back pain. And it's probably where a back pain surgery can get a very bad reputation because early on in the particularly in the journey of the spinal fusion surgery and the evolution of spinal surgery, then decisions were made that, to treat things that were bad and ultimately people operating on things that weren't pain generated and probably doing the wrong operation at the role of spinal level and the role of patient. And funnily enough, they didn't get better and the patients were worse. And our patient selection these days has improved a lot. Our ability to investigate them and to really identify the pain generator is better, but then got to sort of combine all of that with with the patient within their own little universe as well and in a short period of time try and sort of gather whether or not they'll benefit from surgery so i'm very very cautious with operating on patients with back pain and it'll not to say papers don't improve some of my happiest patients that i've operated on to treat back pain but um by far the majority of the time when we're operating is to, to relieve nerve compression and neurological pain are you so people are referred to you? Are you like sort of comfortable with the GP undertaking an MRI in advance? Is that something that's very helpful for you to have? Is that is that like their go to investigation? Yeah, so look, there's a little bit of um, problem in how Medicare rebate MRIs for general practitioners in that they can very easily order an MRI and buy fine, but for the lumbar spine, not so simple. So often I would have a CT before seeing me, but um, you know, because of the importance of MRI, um, you know, we, we pretty much organise most of the imaging for patients for HBE. We try and organise most of the best support at, um, but yeah, MRI is probably the, the critical thing. And the ability of MRI combined with history for really sorting someone out, although physical examination is important, um, you know, most patients I can figure out pretty quickly based on the MRI whether or not they're likely to need surgery or not. And in addition to that, there's a whole host of other tests that we use to generate MRI certainly. Do, do you have a like a, a sort of a heuristic that you run through? So there's, there's neurological symptoms, there's an MRI. If the MRI might not, it's impinging on the nerve, but it might not be terrible. Um, patients reasonably active, but let's say they're an active patient often they complain a bit too of course and they want an outcome that's immediate but do you tend to pass down the pathway of epidural rest physio th- those sort of things like is that something you would do almost always well h- how do you decide when you do that or when you're just going to okay we're just going to operate on you you just need to be decompressed yeah um so we've done initial well there's, there's, there's probably a, a few hard and fast rules so patients coming in with an acute urological deficit like a, a acute foot drop or- yes quarter or quite a syndrome yes and for an unstable fracture then it's very clear cut that they need surgery but um, outside of that most of the part of with a lot of five conditions you really want to concern with people because most patients will improve and if, if you sort of it's why it's almost from my perspective it starts for patients to have a therapeutic wait before they see me because they come in in the first couple of days um, often not enough death if they're actually going to get better. Now, sometimes the pain is so bad that they might just 
I can go straight to third treatment. More often than not, you can manage them with pain medications, steroids, an epidural injection, and really give them a six-week period to see if they actually do need third treatment. Um, by the majority, will get better uh, without surgery. I suspect it's like lots of things, patients that always follow advice and they might always do the exercises that ultimately that you might pass on for them to do. Yeah. Instead of, you know, someone stopping smoking or whatever, losing weight, it's often very difficult to get people to do the things that you ask them to do. And particularly with pain issues, I mean, um, it's very different if you've got a, a large acute sciatica, it's a very yeah. big process of that, but patients have psychological concerns or other my influence their perception of pain. Um, you know, there's no operation that's going to sit more with obesity, depression, not liking your job or your spouse, physical inactivity. I mean, I can't reverse any of those with an operation. Um, and so, um, not to sound harsh. You're you know, expected there's, to. There's a, there's a fan bit of... Um, yeah, well, with, with spinal conditions, there's a better patient motivation that's also needed. I mean, there's so much surgeon can actually um, can actually can actually do. Um, but the stakes are very high for the surgeon. You know, if someone goes to a physiotherapist or a chiropractor or treatment, and then no better, they'll say, oh, "You did your best." If they don't get better after what I do, it's I'm failed, and I'm the worst person on earth. Um, so, it, yes. They, there's an expectation of outcome, isn't there, with a surgery, with with a surgeon? Yeah, and and that's that's the key with fine surgery, managing the patient expectations. And I mean, from my perspective, the worst thing is looking after a patient. I want getting patient that I'll operate on them to get better because it makes my life a hell of a lot easier if they get better and they don't have complications. And and certainly over time, I've got much better at identifying which patients are going to fall into that category. Um, but patients also need to be aware of what to expect. I mean, if you promise that they're going to have zero back pain for the rest of their life and that they're going to have 100% resolution of their neurological symptoms, then they're likely to be pretty disappointed. But, it, you know, it's for a routine microbiotectomy surgery, if you explain something that probably not going to make any difference to the long-term back pain that you've had, but you get a 90% improvement in your leg pain, then they'll be pretty happy because they find it know how things are going to yes. play out because yes. if they expect that it's going to fix the whole host of problems that it's never going to fix that they will be disappointed and it's pretty important that patients have that information before they make the decision as to whether or not they go ahead and and i i'm i kind of like let it again it's very different to a patient that say a brain funeral when you say look you have to have surgery and otherwise you can potentially die with, with, with that issue, you kind of want patients to come to the realisation that they that surgery is the best option for them rather than sort of feeling like they're being hoaxed into an operation. So, and that's different for different patients. Some patients might just say, look, I've got this one fixed. Others kind of go down a process in multiple different interventions. It's, it's easier for me if a patient comes to me and says, you know, I'm ready for it now. I want to have the operation rather than me just saying, you must have it. Yeah. The reality is a lot of these conditions are, are benign conditions and patients just need to know what the um, the likely outcome will be with the surgery, okay? And then also have the most minimal approach to it. David, what's kind of new in your surgery of the spine? What What's, you know, what, what are the new things that have sort of come on to the, the scene? So there's probably a few things that are, um, I mean, so... 
the advent to the, to the people. So um, the advent of minimally invasive surgery, I mean, the likes of surgery, like a lot of different surgical approaches, yeah. but the ability to perform a nav decompression or future a much smaller incision where you're minimizing collateral damage to surrounding structure basically um uh robotic is a is certainly new now it's a bit different to urology where the surgeon actually fits the console and it really is a robot doing the surgery the robots we use in spine surgery are more to help with um accurate plates and niche of screws and, and other hardware um we have uh, pretty advanced in your own navigation now. So, uh, the sort of day that just identifying, you know, entry points for screws or, or, or anatomical landmarks to purely off the mapping, although that's the important. We're very precise now in dropping CT scanners and having like a GPS container where we can match every bit of anatomy with uh, the MRI or CT scanning. So, it just it allowed us to be a lot more precise and then also avoid potential problem in spinal endoscopy is um something which is starting to uh, come along it's a bit slow to take off in australia but certainly there are more sites per minute now uh, they're probably the main um main well thank thank you for running through that what what is spinal endoscopy that sounds interesting must be a very small instrument i would think tiny yeah and look i'm I'm fairly, I don't do a lot of it, um, but it, um, it's definitely doing surgery. And it's only fairly, we're basically using a small underscope to, to perform something. Access, access difficult places. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Do, do you, are you involved at all with a stereotactic surgery for epilepsy or deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's? Is that something that, it, you know, is there a call of that for that? I mean, I mean, Stereotactomy in a cranial work has been around for, for years, I mean, decades. Um, I, I've had a lot of experience with uh, deep brain stimulation, um, but it's not, it's not something that I, I've been feeling. I've done something I've done before as a consultant. Because uh, the outcome of that sort of surgery seems to be quite miraculous as well. Yep. Well, for, for, for treating things like Parkinson's, the potential tremor and the outcomes are phenomenal. I mean, it's a super effective treatment. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to, I mean, if you get pretty blase about it when you say that a lot of the parts, but it's pretty amazing when you're in theater with an awake patient uh, with an electrode in their brain and you can switch it on and off and watch their tremor come and go. Um, and, you know, that people that can't feed themselves or dress themselves because the tremor is so significant. Um, and it, it really added um, change people's lives, and it's, it's relatively I mean, it's very safe and, and pretty reliable surgery in, in the right patient. Um, so no doubt, very satisfied for the surgeons that, that, that do it. David, I know that's not what you're doing now, but are you aware of the selection criteria for those sort of patients? It does sound like it's life changing. In that, so look, I don't. It, it's generally part of a team, and, and a lot of it, the patient selection is driven by a a movement disordered neurologist who um, will refer the patient. And look, I'd, again, that's on my area. There are a lot of it managed um, by uh, an, an, a neurologist and, and a movement disordered aid. And then, yes. and then in fact, a lot of the programming is then done by the neurologist. 
how are you balancing you know work life it, it's a demanding specialty it's often you know long operations just tell us a little bit about that how, how are you managing i know you've been to port douglas recently which is a great, great place to go but how do you balance things out yeah so there was certainly a long period of my life where i had not a good balance okay certainly uh through training um there was not a great work-life balance and then the first probably three or four years of being a consultant i was working a hell of a lot on call a lot and you know you you kind of then whether it was structured to your day but it would often be interrupted and you would um, now i'm lucky or fortunate enough to sort of been able to mold my, my practice to something that i have a lot more control over so um i do minimal on call um i don't work with the ends um three Fridays off months now, which I'll wind up working anyway, but better than sort of five days turning into, turning into seven and have four turning into five is a lot more manageable. So I, I think like a lot of people with COVID, I, I reached a point where I realised you know, it's be so much and there's only so much empathy you get had for patients and so much um, and time that you can give to your patients and then also not take it away from yourself or your family. Um, and I'm, I've kind of reached a point now where I, I need to save myself and also for my kids and, and wife. So I've got a much better balance out of than what I previously had been. Certainly difficult to get in that stage. Yeah, yeah, it's very wise. Did, did you have anyone mentor you in that regard? I think it's something maybe is lacking a bit in medicine. We don't get that kind of you know, paternal, that kind of advice. I think, you know, if I, I had a dollar for every neurosurgeon that said to me, don't do it, get out while you can. Well, I was <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about classifies but tell advice, but um I think I think I think a lot more surgeons now are, are sort of work more towards trying to be a little bit more manageable in what they do, but it can be difficult depending on what you work in and if you're also trying to grow a practice yes, the uh yeah. the, and it can also the nature of the conditions that you're looking after can also have a big impact. I don't I don't, for instance, do uh, aneurysm surgery, but if you're a, a cerebrovascular surgeon, then the, the chance of be getting called out, you know, in the middle of the night for erupted aneurysm and, and dealing with Adamowin's problems is very, very high. Yes. yes. So, unfortunately, it's fine. Although there are emergencies that get me out of bed, they're, they're not as common as yeah. what the other cranial condition. Yeah, there's always lots of plans to spin, aren't there? You know, running a practice of family. Can, can you give any sort of insights or advice to a, like a young doctor that's maybe thinking about a career in neurosurgery? Uh, what what would what advice? Don't do it. Might be what. But what advice would you give to them? Someone who you know who's got those stars in their eyes. They want to, they want to do neurosurgery for a whole range of reasons. They love the anatomy. They love the sort of work you've explained and discussed. You know, then make a big difference, and you do make a huge difference. What would you say to them? I think I think the challenges for young doctors are not specific to one specialty. I think the challenges in the advice I'd give to a lot of younger doctors would would, would more be to do demic problems within our our healthcare system, which probably make being a doctor or becoming a specialist or or any type of doctor more and more challenging. But um, I think I think. Very easy when you're in your twenties to sort of think what's cool. I think it's important for people to sort of think what they actually do want in a long term. Um, yes, and that, that's probably that's probably important. I think 
people are often very scared to change their mind on things. And so I think it's important in something like neurosurgery to come and try it and see if you actually like it. It's very different to what people might might think. I mean, it's probably not as glamorous as what a lot of people might think that it is. Um, you probably want to just make sure that you have a good understanding of exactly, I mean, it's not all good there, you know, aneurysms. Um, there's a lot of other stuff that goes on behind the scenes and, and then so a lot of it is not operative. Um, yes, yes. If, if I think the other thing I would say, more encouraged, it's a, a pretty rewarding career, um, but you just need to be prepared for one, it's hard work. I, I think the hard work is one thing, and I think most people realise that you're not going to go into it if you don't have that. I think probably one thing I underestimated and wasn't aware of the degree of stress that you need to be able to manage and the impact that that can have on you over time. Um, and it, I'm, I'm better at managing stress now, but there's no doubt either the stress of the job, the stress of some situations repeatedly over time, and then also dealing with death and morbidity on a regular basis can, can change who you are. It can that's down it too, Nick. It sort of keeps away the soul a little bit. It, um, you deal with these situations and it can sort of shape how you view the world. And, and um, But yeah, it's important that people learn to manage their, their stress in a healthy way. I mean, I'm, I'm a very avid cyclist, so that's kind of my life in cycles. Yeah, like the Tour, tour de France. Yeah. Tour de France and neurosurgery not a good combination. Every time I that's right. <laughs> David, look, thank you very much. Uh, I hope to have a cycle with you sometime. I love cycling as well, and uh, it's really nice to talk to you. Thank you for your great work in the area and, and for the insights into neurosurgery that you shared with us, David. I really do appreciate it. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me in this conversation with David Omi on neurosurgery. I was especially interested to hear about the minimally invasive techniques and of the spinal scope that he has been using to gain access to difficult places. It's a wonderful conversation. During the podcast series, we'll be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au.